Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has just passed 1 million downloads, which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own discord channel now where there's chat and things on it there's ko-fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like there's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are and of course just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year so thank you once again i'm going to stop waffling here's the show Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War Air Power podcast, hedgehopping with me, Matt Bone. And you'll be pleased to know we're actually doing World War II as we've deviated from the path recently. Because on the other side of the world, a very British fighter is being rebuilt. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are finally talking Hawker Typhoons on this show. Because we're going to be talking about one in particular, JP843. She served with 197, 198, and famously was 609 Squadron before she was lost in 1944. Today, she is the centerpiece of an ambitious restoration project to return her to the skies in British Columbia, Canada, of all places in the world. So to discuss this project, the aircraft, a goat, and the man who flew her, I'm delighted to welcome Typhoon Legacy Project Lead, YouTube star himself, Ian Slater to Hedgehopping. How are you doing, sir? Fantastic. Thank you very much for that introduction. I, I don't like to be referred to as a YouTube star. I prefer sensation. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you doing? How's BC? Well, it's wonderful. It's starting to warm up and we've got a little bit of sunshine. We just uh, melted off our last little bit of snow and I think that's behind us now. So hopefully we can get to a little bit more outdoorsy stuff and door open work in the shop. Fantastic. Yeah, it, it is that time of year, which is either going to warm up or you're going to get another couple of feet of snow before it's finally oh, Don't say that. <laughs> we, we got hit pretty hard this year and uh, I'm done with it. Yeah. Did, how, did you guys get the heat last summer as well in your, or were you safe from that? 
We did, yeah. We got a, a pretty good spell, and I think air conditioning will be in order this year, even if it's just for a couple of months. <laughs> let, let, yeah, t- typically British way of starting anything, talking about the weather. But let's get into this. So, Ian, I suppose that the main question, how did you get into typhoons? What, what sort of your background that led you to where we are now? Quite some time ago, basically as a, a child, I was, I was very much into uh, Second World War aviation. I'm, I'm not sure where that started, really. But I, I was fortunate that my, my grandmother was a uh, librarian, and she'd always make sure that I'd have fresh books on the topic of the Second World War. And um, I think primarily early on, I'm, I'm talking like 11 years old, 12 years old, it was uh, the Bowfighter and the B-17. I remember drawing quite a bit anyway. And... Uh, it must have been my birthday or Christmas. My grandmother got me this book and it had a, a two-page foldout of a Hawker Typhoon. And I'd never seen one before and I was just absolutely hooked with it. It was all marked. I think it was a rocket firing typhoon and it was it had its D-Day uh, invasion stripes on it. And it was just, it caught my eye and it, I just stuck with it. So essentially with that, I focused my goals and understandings on how one could possibly restore, rebuild, or uh, see a typhoon return to the skies. And I guess that's fairly general, but <laughs> um, it, over the years, I realized that essentially there's one typhoons there. It's not like there's a, a pile of wrecks of typhoons or a huge stockpile of parts out there or surviving bits. I started looking for drawings and any other little bits of information that I could find regarding the technical side of the aircraft. And really became dismayed in that as well, because that didn't survive any better than the airframe or the engine did. Ultimately, as I was getting older, I, I kind of set my career path on what I felt was needed to actually do the work myself to do a, a rebuild or a restoration, if I could find anything. And that's how I ended up getting into aircraft structures and uh, metalwork. So you're a man who actually bends metal himself. I'm a metal bender. Guys call them metal bashers. It's very offensive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's take the story back to the beginning because we're going to tell the story of JP843. What's the history of her? Because she's got, sadly, quite a typical career for a typhoon, as in it didn't last particularly long. So what is the tale of the aircraft? And got to mention Billy because that there's got that great, great photo of, of him next to the aircraft. Yeah. What are the chances of that? The the one photo we have of JP843 in service, there's uh, William DeGoat and Blitz the dog mascots of 609 squadron. It's unbelievable. Essentially JP843, I, I don't recall the batch number that it was built in, but she was delivered, built and delivered as a car door type typhoon in September of 1943 and delivered to 197 Squadron. From my memory, flew as OBT primarily with 197. And from September through to approximately February was on strength with them before it went for modifications. It, during that time, it, there's a number of interactions, I believe, with 109s and 190s, some small damage to ailerons and things like that. And basically, from what I understand... She was sidelined as the newer typhoons were coming in early on in 44. So that's why I think one of her last missions with the 197 was somewhere in January. And she basically stayed on strength, just pushed out of the way as the newer newer typhoons are coming in. And then JP843 went for modifications as well. And that was 197 was flying with typically 500 pound bombs. And so the modifications that, 
JP843 underwent were the sliding hood conversion as well as rocket projectile modifications. And in June 8th of 1944, was delivered again to 609 Squadron as the new variant. Could we talk about those modifications? Because it's something I've, I've talked about in the past that it was one of the sort of great things about the Hawker design was that it could take all of these different modifications going in. And I know in your latest video, you, you talked about the differences that the cockpit section would have and the complications that adds to you guys to, to put it all back together. But how much sort of work would that be to... to because you, you'd think it's weld up the doors and, and put a new put a new lid on it and, and it's away. But I'm guessing it was a little bit more to it than that. Uh, yeah, I would suggest there is. And actually, I'd have to do a little bit more research to speak fully on that. The um, the angle of the windscreen was different between earlier typhoons and later ones. So I, I haven't because we're not working in that area. I haven't fully researched that part of it, but I, I would imagine there'd be a substantial amount of work with that. I think it does look like it would be a fairly straightforward mod, and it probably happened quite quickly at the contractor, but there would be a substantial amount of work involved in it. When you look at the modification uh, for the sliding hood itself, it's modification 307. That was uh, a contractor mod, and all the notes that you can find in the Typhoon engineering orders basically just refer it back to the contractor. So trying to find a, a stipulation of exactly exactly what was entailed with that is a little bit difficult, but it would include the doors themselves. There would be rework of the windscreen. And then the most significant part would actually be installing the sliding hood and they had a a series of special fixtures uh, to align the uh, canopy rails that went into the monocoque section for that process. So I I wouldn't want to guess at how many hours went into it, but there would have been a lot of people involved in these things and a lot of, uh, a lot of work cutting them up and, removing and installing new parts and doing them as quickly as they possibly can as well absolutely i think uh, a lot of the modifications that happened with the typhoon seemingly happened overnight but from my point of view trying to understand how they got that kind of manpower into one little area like that is uh, is pretty impressive tim elkington always used to say that that he flew his typhoon into into oxford Oxford, I think he said, and uh, they put the fish plates on overnight. Oh, so yeah. He, so he, he had a wonderful night out in Oxford and they, <laughs> they put some fish plates on his plane, which he didn't ever think did anything for him, but he got a night out in Oxford. So he was quite happy. That's actually pretty interesting because one of the reasons that they left those fish plates on there was for pilot comfort. It, <laughs> so if the pilots didn't seem to care if they were on there, it makes it a bit of an interesting idea. Yeah, sort of a visual marker that that we have actually done something, whereas underneath is way. That's a different story. Right? It is, yeah. So she comes back in early June. Does she go straight back to 197 or does she end up with a different squadron? No, early June uh, was uh, straight to 609 squadron. But for operations, 609 didn't actually fly JP843 in early June. Uh, 609 and 198 were sister squadrons, and 198 actually took her into operations first. And uh, I think it was only one occasion, possibly two. And I believe she actually came back with engine trouble and essentially sat out the rest of June from there on. Possibly there there were some training flights in there, but um, back at 6.09 in early July. When she's back at 6.09, she did have one pilot that flew her once or twice who you guys are doing a lot of work to, to help remember. Who was he? Peter Price. And Peter Price is a Kiwi, and this is really something that I try and emphasize. Um, I know the typhoon is a a very 
British aircraft and uh, it's it's associated with the RAF, but the, there's so many pilots from New Zealand and um, Canada and from around the world that flew in either dedicated squadrons like 451 with the, uh, the Kiwis or 438, 439 or 440 with the Canadians or amalgamated into squadrons like 609 where, man, there's a lot of guys from around the world that were flew in there. So Peter Price is a, a young fellow. He is 20 years old and he made his way through the training system. He, he was trained in New Zealand and during his entire training time, he was serving with his best friend, Owen Loudon. And both of them traveled through their training through to the U.S. and then over to the U.K. and uh, served with 55 OTU. On the 27th of December, 1943, Owen was in a mock dogfight in a Hawker hurricane and lost his life after a mid-air collision with another aircraft. And this would have been a time that Peter Price was with him as well, maybe not in that operation, but he lost his best friend at that point in time. And he continued on in his training and ended up uh, with 609 Squadron in 1944. Yeah, it was a short career because the aircraft and Peter's only last until about July, don't they? It's it's not a long time to have, which is about right when you look at the volume of casualties there are in those first couple of months over Normandy. That's right. And actually on the, the mission on the 27th of July, 1944, that uh, Peter Price was lost. Pilot Officer Buchanan, a, a Canadian pilot with 609, was lost on the same mission. So they, there's uh, pretty frequently there is multiple aircraft lost on each occasion. But you can look at the, the 197 Squadron history and they're out and they're just flying across the channel, dropping their bombs and coming back. But once Normandy started, there is a huge attrition of pilots and aircraft. It, it's it's fun you know to to gen up on this i went back to ziegler and and the things and you sort of get the a few mentions of of price and there's a fun story about him buying a, a german helmet and picking up souvenirs on one of the the day stops that 609 made and i suppose for both of us you kind of forget how young these guys are and it's amazing yeah it is and one uh neat little story that i got there was uh, peter price when they when the squadron moved into France, he was one of the first guys that was there, and they changed his last name or gave him the nickname of Pricks because of the French translation of Price, of course. So his nickname was Pricks. <laughs> <laughs> so the op that he was killed on, he um, it's kind of sad because he he didn't die in the aircraft, did he? He 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 did just about get out. Well, and that's uh, there's still a bit of confusion on that, uh, or we can't really prove what happened. He he did get out of the aircraft, and he was found on the ground away from his aircraft. So he he parachuted out. Uh, a young French boy found him, and um, he actually referred to uh, Peter Price as his pilot. So the the town had been evacuated, and uh, Peter landed in a field. His aircraft landed in a different field, and this young boy found him. So. We know the aircraft was shot down. It was hit by flak and he was out of control and going towards earth and he managed to get himself out. So he was alive at that point in time, whether he had injuries or not, I'm not too sure, but there's also orders for the, uh, the German army to kill typhoon pilots specifically. So there's potential of he was injured and he died basically after he parachuted out, he could have hit the tailplane and died in that manner, or he could have been executed on the ground. And there's really no way to tell at this point in time. But there's a lovely little memorial there for him now, isn't there? There is, yes, in, in that town. And the young boy that found him actually and his family brought Peter's body back to their farm and buried him on site. And it was in 1946 where the RAF went back in and exhumed him and brought him into Rainville Cemetery for proper burial. There's quite a nice memorial to him in the town. 
In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. So that's the sort of rather brief and normal career of JP843. And that's kind of where our story takes a bit of a breather because she's, I think you said she was the battlefield recovery people did their, did their thing. She was left for scrap and until a bunch of crazy Canadians had this idea of getting, getting themselves a typhoon to fly about in. Yeah. Essentially um, the, the project itself, the, and we'll call it the JP843 project. It's got two beginnings and one starts with me when I was younger and dedicating my career to getting to the point where I could do something about it. But Roger Marley is the fellow that I actually bought the JP843 project from. And he'd been working on collecting typhoon parts and putting together a static display of JP843 for many, many years, uh, well, decades, as a matter of fact, and had done a fantastic job. And it, essentially, his display was an amalgamation of original parts, and he had built up a, uh, a monocoque section and a tail section so that typhoon pilots could come and see that much of a typhoon. And it was on a trailer yarded around to different, different air shows. And it had 609 written on the side of it and a very impressive collection of wartime 609 pilots that had had the opportunity to see this typhoon section, sit in the cockpit or view it and signed it wonderfully. It's a, it's amazing. We still have that, that section. So so he did a huge service. I, I see two surviving pilots at the time from the 90s and early 2000s. And the work that he did transferred on to us where we could uh, use all of those components as reverse engineering templates and data to help with the, I guess, my side of the story that caught up to JP843 for Airworthy Rebuild. So how big is the team? Because I'm, I'm taking it. It's not just you. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> we're, uh, we're all volunteers. So the team kind of, I would say it, it fluctuates in a, in a manner of speaking. So right now I think we've got 12 or 13 people and it really depends on life priorities coming and going. Some people are more involved than others and it, it also depends on progress or aspects being worked on. Essentially what I would say is that our design team, we've got four designers involved in it and these are all our CAD guys. They are the busiest of them all right now. I'd almost say flat out working on their individual aspects of the project. And without those guys, the progress in the shop cannot happen. So we're in 2022 now and uh, CAD work has been ongoing since probably 2014, 2015. And uh, we're nowhere near done, but we've accomplished a massive amount of documentation and correction of original uh, geometry and just verifications of components and we're to the point now because of those guys that we're approaching uh, an area or a, a time period where we're going to be able to make massive strides in progress um, because this geometry the material specs have been worked out and all of the data has been proven so it'll allow us to progress well myself and uh, potentially rob anyway to progress in pretty large steps in the shop here. 
I was, I was going to ask on, on that material spec, how much of an issue is it going from, say, old school 1940 imperial measurements to modern Canada being a very metric-y sort of place to make sure that you're lining those things up? Is the same sort of stuff available or are you having to, to start searching around, find some special order stuff? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, that's a big one, actually. And that um, I, I kind of bunched that up with the, the design side. But prior to the design side, one of our team members, Graham Allen, he's our systems lead. He was instrumental in gathering data, material specifications, and, and that kind of data to allow us to convert wartime specifications into modern specifications. Those, the material specs and the metallurgy, specifically the Sydney Cam metallurgy, the, the design, the joint plates, all of that stuff, it was absolutely phenomenal. And I would, this is just my opinion, but I think the metallurgy of the day was probably more advanced than what we see today. Essentially, they seem to have an alloy created for absolutely every part. And it was the most ideal alloy for that part. And what the modern specifications have done is they've taken one alloy and replaced 10 or 15 other alloys of wartime, and they cover it off strength-wise, elasticity-wise, and give you the mechanical properties that you need for the components. So there's quite a bit of detail required to convert those beautiful, beautifully designed alloys of the war into a modern specification that can take the correct loads and be safe. The metric thing, I know Canada's metric, but... (laughs) um, (laughs) So aviation in North America is still all imperial. So my, and prior to my training as an aircraft structures technician, I was a millwright and that was all imperial as well. So I I really have very little to do with metric. I, I can convert it (laughs) when I, when I do see a measurement, (laughs) uh, all of our work is done in imperial anyway. So it it actually, I think it kind of, it helps us because all the original drawings were that way. And it it saves that one uh, potential step that could cause error in design. So I guess the big question is, how are things going? Because we've sort of seen the, seen that we've seen the videos. We've and just off to what I'm guessing is your right. There is a, a monocoque on its way, but what what just says? That's a tricky question. I, I think I actually had one of those on a video asking for the the status of the aircraft project, and. If it's, I, haven't, it's to be, I know I'm, I'm throwing you a bit of a hospital pass there. That's the worst question <laughs> in the world. And it's just nice to be able to ask it instead of receive it for a change. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many aspects. And at any given time, 
there are multiple aspects being worked on. Some hit a wall and slow down while we research something or design something and they can cause issue, but there's always another aspect of the project that we can move on and put our focus on. So essentially the first section that we started working on for production, the design has been complete for some time. And when I talk about production, I talk about not only the aircraft production, but producing the fixtures and the tooling to do so. The fixtures and form blocks and things like that will take as long as the remainder of the design to, to produce. So our first section was the monocoque section, which is, it is sitting off to my right here. Uh, our frames are produced there. Uh, I think I've got this splice plates in production right now. And essentially I've put that section on hold and uh, I've done that to complete our Merlin project, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit. But while I'm taking a break from the monocoque section, our designers, my, my father is our lead design technician. He's a, a very experienced CAD operator. And he's been uh, completing and verifying the cockpit section. The cockpit section is essentially the heart of the typhoon, and it's the, the section to which everything else attaches. So it, it affects everything else around it. So this is one area that's been in design that I would say quite confidently since 2015 with Nicholas Walter taking every single joint and component and helping convert it to CAD data or identifying what's needed so we could find the part and measure it or laser scan it, get it to him. And it's just been a huge ongoing process. So my father, Bruce, has taken that on and he's near the end of the verification. I'd say we've got two or three smaller components that we need to identify correctly to, to complete the cockpit section in design form, which is a mammoth step and basically gives us the go ahead to take verified files and produce components or reverse it or not reverse engineer, but made repair parts is the term that Transport Canada likes. So we'd produce repair parts for this cockpit section. So I'd say that the cockpit is at a very much advanced state right now. Uh, the design and research side is what I would comfortably say more than half of the work on that section. And now we're into the phase where once this monocoque gets back on track and is completed, we'll be able to hit the ground running on the cockpit section and uh, really get the heart of the typhoon together. The radiator fairings here, and actually that was an interesting one. I love the typhoon's radiator fairing. It's absolutely beautiful. So early on in the build, and this would be right back to the 2015 timeframe as well. We had uh, Matt Myers in the UK did a, a bunch of design work for us and got a, a fixture designed as well. And I built the tooling up and uh, produced some radiator frames here. And I did them using manual lofting, just like uh, the guys would have done during the war. I did it on Mylar, but one-to-one -one tracing using the geometry provided in the drawings. And that's sitting here too. It, it's a wonderful piece of gear, but it as well is kind of pushed onto the side because it's not needed right now. The monocoque was a priority over that and the cockpit's a priority. We're bouncing around, but we're making progress. It, it's that sort of double curve, isn't it? It's just that beautiful shape as it comes off the engine and then sort of bulges out around the, the radiator phase. It's just a lovely, lovely shape. It's amazing. Yeah, to build the frames, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful challenge from my point, just because of the contours that are involved in it. They're not complete yet. It's Like I say, it's just on hold. But when we get into the skinning, that's going to be very interesting. So I'm cautiously optimistic about doing that, but it's going to be one heck of a challenge. But is it that is a typhoon, really. Oh, yeah. That's one of the things about the Hawker designs is there's there's not as many complex curves on it as, say, a Spitfire, but then you get to the front of it and there's an incredible set of complex curves right right at the pointy end. 
pretty well. Yeah, they uh, they put them all in one little area there, but uh, <laughs> it uh, it definitely gives it its own character, and it'll give a nice challenge for me to to play with. Pinnacle of my career, I'd say, is being able to complete that. Well, looking forward to seeing how you get on with that, whenever that may be. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the Merlin because everybody loves a Merlin. And okay, there's, you know, we we're talking about this before. Some people might be saying, well, that's not typhoon related, but everything feeds back towards the typhoon. Tell us about that because that's as much as you can tell us, I suppose, because, you know, there's thing, things about these things that we can never quite, quite, never quite talk about. But what's the story about you guys getting a Merlin that you have been getting into quite stunning condition over the past, well, has it been about a year now? Two, two years. Two, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to see some of the comments that come out of it. And there's we've got some amazing supporters, very, very patient supporters. And uh, I think I, I mentioned earlier that one of the things that's very important to me with this project is that we show our capabilities. Ian Slater is a, not a known name with some of the major restoration companies in the world. People are starting to get to know me and Typhoon Legacy now, but it's taking time. And really to develop a, a reputation as a quality worker in anything, you need to produce. <laughs> so that's basically what we do. Everything that we do in the shop here and uh, even design-wise, every aspect of the project is done to the highest level of detail and ability that we're able to do. And it's to try and help show people that we're capable. If people want to make a contribution to the project, they're not giving it to somebody that's just going to spend their money and have it disappear on them. We're going to put it towards the construction of the aircraft and we're more than capable of doing that. The Merlin, I guess we're not millionaires, so we don't have a lot of money and these projects are expensive. So the benefit from the get-go with this is that we have technical ability within our, our group of volunteers and a lot of experience in doing what we do. So when we hit a wall or we need help with something, one of our options is to find somebody else that needs help with whatever they're doing. And the Merlin is a bit of that. And uh, Merlins are essentially their own currency in the warbird world. So it worked out pretty well for us, but we were presented with an opportunity to help the Airworthy Rebuild of Hawker Typhoon JP843 by acquiring, rebuilding, and running this Rolls-Royce Merlin 3. So I can't go too much into it right now, but essentially throughout the progression of this project, there's probably going to be additional cases where we have to take on outside semi-related jobs to significantly advance the Typhoon project using the skills that we have in lieu of currency. So that's what the Merlin is. We're we're nearing the end of it now. As a matter of fact, I just uh, got word earlier in the week that our propeller is done for it. So We've got a couple of different system things left to do, but uh, the bulk of the work is behind us. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to show people what they've been waiting for for almost two years. And it's a Merlin 3. It's an early Merlin. It's, it is a it is. beast, isn't it? Yeah. I was really surprised that we found this one, actually. We got a, a decent price on it. We've traced it back. It appears that it was a, a fairy battle Merlin. And it was, it was produced in Derby. England and came over to Canada. It was re-stamped with an RCAF serial number, but it's it's had a bit of history to it. And it's a beautiful engine. It's absolutely amazing to take it apart and see what they did inside. There's even pulling the reduction gear case off the front of it and the prop shaft when we're doing our inspections. There's an area that there's a significant 
amount of oil and lots of pressure in that area. And there's no gasket between the engine block and that. It's hand scraped and it's done beautifully and it seals. <laughs> so it, it's a good indication of the quality of the hand crafted workmanship that goes into these engines. That's brilliant. So I'm, I'm going to ask this. I know it's just sitting there in the corner, but the, the Taurus, oh. that's, another, that's another great farm. And that does have a lot more sort of impact into to where we're going. It's sleeve valve, it's big. But that's a, another fantastic story of you guys getting your hands on, on something quite special. Well, yeah, I kind of wheel and deal. Everything I do in, well, almost everything I do in life is to support the typhoon. I'm just addicted to this thing. And um, so I'm always wheeling and dealing and seeing what I can do. And this is a tourist story, trust me, but I, I bought an Alfa Romeo uh, 115T, I think it's called. It's a it's an Alfa Romeo license built gypsy queen, essentially. And I got a reasonable deal or so I thought. They're not worth much money, but I got a reasonable deal. It was all preserved. And I basically, I think I've got a video on that, actually, if you want to check that out. But it's out of the back of the shop. And I bought that thinking I could either flip it for a little bit of cash and put that into the project or trade it for something that would be worthwhile. So I don't know that that was a very good purchase. But it sat there for a while. Nobody was interested in it. I significantly uh, um, overestimated the value of the thing. And then a couple months later, a fellow in town here, a local guy, donated a um, Canada Air Argus propeller. These things are, it's a three-bladed propeller, and it's 15 and a half feet in diameter. It's completely out of my area, but uh, it sat here, and it as well took up a lot of space that we could have used for the Typhoon and frustrated me to no end. And the fellow that donated it actually said he just wanted it out of his garage because it takes up so much space, and I felt his pain almost immediately when I got it here. (laughs) So these two things are sit and take up space in the shop, and... uh, I, I don't know how I got onto this, but a couple of phone calls, I was able to find an outfit that had two Bristol Taurus engines, which really appealed to me. And it, it wasn't known at first. We had these parts and talked about a trade and didn't have anything to trade for. And Graham Allen went and visited the site where these Bristol Taurus engines were and sent me some pictures. And we were basically just looking for items of opportunity to trade for. So they stuck out right away and we made a deal and we got them here during some significant flooding and weather issues here. <laughs> um, but they're here. So we've got two Bristol Taurus engines. And while not specific to the Typhoon, uh, you did mention that they're a sleeve valve engine. And one of the things that really interests me with them is they're about 1936 technology. The sleeve valve on these engines, or the, the sleeve itself, is a five-inch bore, which is the same bore as a neighbor saber. During the early phases of uh, saber development, they're having sleeve issues. And the Air Ministry essentially forced Bristol to share their sleeve data. They used Bristol Taurus sleeves or the sleeve blanks to produce the sleeves for the Sabre. So that's our our Sabre connection. But they're also very rare engines and looking to move them on eventually and find some way to benefit the Typhoon project using them. I'm, 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 this is the bit that never makes it into the edit, but the Taurus was in Bowfighter or the Beaufort? Beaufort and only yeah. some. Mm. Yeah, they and uh, as well as the Ferry Albacore. The Beaufort, the British built Beaufort, early on had the Taurus. And then they went to, uh, I believe it was either Pratt and Whitney's or Wright's. And all of the Australian built Beauforts had the American engines as well. So there weren't too many. And most of the, the Beauforts that used the Taurus operated out of the Mediterranean area, from my understanding. I'm by no means an expert in it. So I've seen a picture online of a Taurus engine, but I don't know who owns it. 
So I don't think there's very many. I believe there's one ferry albacore, which has an engine and potentially one other engine on display somewhere. But uh, I'd be interested in hearing from anybody that knows of them. There's a Beaufort being done in Bristol, isn't there? Which will probably be... I, I may be wrong in that. And if I am, this is coming out of the edit. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. This is my show. I've got, I've got to make myself sound good. <laughs> but that's that's fantastic. And and it's that's so important, especially with all the fun and games that came with um, Bristol's and English Electric later with, with, with Napier and the politics of it. These sorts of bits given the the rarity of them are all going to feed into running operation maintenance of the typhoon when she's once she's ready to go well it's ultimately it's all part of the story it's um and it's a way that we can help other projects as well uh, and tell those stories so i think everybody working together doesn't matter what type of project if you're looking to preserve history we're all going to cross paths at some point, and we're all going to have a different resource or a different ability that's going to benefit somebody else. So it's, it's pretty fantastic to come across these things. And when they do pop up, I don't like to let them go. If I can do anything about it, there's a, I actually, during my service in the Canadian forces, when I was an apprentice, I worked on T-33s, Canada Air Silver Stars or the the T-Birds that everybody knows. And they retired them in 2002 out of Comox here. And a couple of them, well, actually, they got spread all over the place. You see them on a stick everywhere throughout Canada now. They're really not a very high-value aircraft, but one went up for sale, and I bid on it, and I won. So I've got a T-33 sitting out in front of the shop right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's just another thing, another piece of history, but it's one that I actually worked on during my service. So, <laughs> yeah, just pick stuff up, trade it off, and uh, move forwards. But every every little bit's going to be the part of the story of JP-843 right back from wartime through Roger Marley, through all the shenanigans that I get into and all our team members get into. And uh, eventually, hopefully, it'll be told. Fantastic. So if people want to sort of follow you, keep up to date, what's the best way they can do that? Honestly, I struggle with this stuff. Uh, essentially I'm the guy that's doing all of the social media. I'm actually going to be advertising, looking for somebody to help me, but the most up-to-date stuff is typically the videos that we do on YouTube. So we've, we do have a website, typhoonlegacy.com. That is probably the least up-to-date platform to find any information on us. It's got some general information and really good information on Peter Price. The next one would be Facebook, which we do have some posts on there regularly that follow and typically update our YouTube activity and the, the YouTube channel would be the primary free avenue to see what's going on. You'll notice in the YouTube videos, I, I usually mention our paid subscription channel. It's the exact same content. I started off messing around and taking clips out for YouTube and, and all that, but that didn't go over well. So YouTube has full videos, but we've got a paid channel that has them as well. And they're launched early on that channel. And as well as that, there's uh, shop updates in a forum where we can all interact and discuss the typhoon. And if I'm announcing something or, or doing something interesting in the shop, I share pictures that don't get shared anywhere else and discuss it with the guys. So that's a good avenue, but it does cost a couple bucks a month. So if you want to keep up to date and, and get it for free, absolutely. Watch a couple ads on the YouTube channel and we'll, we'll call it square. <laughs> we'll put all the links to all of that into the description for this this episode as well so people can have a click on that and find you as easily as we can make that awesome appreciate it thank you so ian thank you so much this has been great and it's wonderful to see 843 coming along and your side projects which are always great fun and uh it's the fun thing about your youtube channel is you're never quite sure what what's going to pop up on it and it's uh it's brilliant i think the the word for that is chaos (laughs) 
Chaos is always interesting. That's why we love it. (laughs) But Ian, thank you. This has been a true delight. Thank you very much for joining us. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Matt. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.